0: Good morning, everyone. Thank you, call and company, for a chance for us to hear some worship and hopefully engage in it. We are going to be continuing this morning in First John. So what I'd like you to do is please turn to Ephesians chapter two. <laughs> What do you expect from me? Come on. If you would turn to Ephesians chapter two, if you'd like to follow with me. The uh, title for today is the Christian and righteousness. But I want to start in Ephesians because the whole concept of a Christian and righteousness. I'm going to come from it in First uh, John. Basically what's being presented today from chapter 3 verses 4 to 10 is going to be, how do you identify a real Christian? Because if you remember, the church that we're, we're dealing with here, when John writes to them sometime around between AD 90 and 95, as he does, uh, the church that he's dealing with has been under attack from false teachers and these false teachings and doctrines started getting into the bloodstream of some of the people there and as John says in his letter and some of them were leaving they were leaving to go with these false teachers and John basically is giving us tests throughout this book tests to identify who is a real Christian And if you remember, he gave us tests of uh, doctrine, dealing with who is the real Jesus, the right Jesus. And uh, tests dealing with sin, our sinful condition, the doctrines of sin. He deals then with moral issues, uh, dealing with obedience, that the true Christian obeys God. Follows God's laws, as Jesus said in John 15, uh, those who obey me are the ones who love me. He says, if you obey me, you know, those are the ones who are going to love Him. Love is shown through obedience, and then He goes on. I am. I have to be honest with you. I have been sick this week, and uh, I'm. I'm doing better, but. I got to get my, my thoughts going here, so just forgive me if I seem a little bit uh, <laughs> woozy this morning. I, uh, I I started improving yesterday, but uh, I was concerned if I was going to be down for the count today. But uh, we'll see if I should uh, if I should collapse up here. Is Mark Harrigan here? We just just or call you. Just step right on top of me as a soapbox and continue. That's it. That's it. Make use of me. I'm there but anyway he goes through the test of obedience and the test of love these moral tests and then he goes on to say that if you are a christian you don't love the things of the world the world meaning that system of evil that is against jesus and he refers to them as those who aren't believers christians as antichrists and So we're we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2 for a moment because I want to talk about righteousness, but I want to look at the source of righteousness here, why we are righteous. But before I do that and we read the Scripture, I'd like to pray, if we could. Father, we ask that you would come, Holy Spirit, I pray you would give me your words, and you would give us ears to hear, and then hearts, and minds, and wills that gladly accept your word, Lord, and put it into practice, that we would be living, not only declared righteous in your sight, but righteousness would be growing inside of us and being shown lord by our daily lives we ask this in jesus name amen okay i am going to go to ephesians 2 because ephesians 2 is such a clear picture of the radicalness of salvation salvation being a christian is radical You are a radical if you're a Christian because you are so opposite of what the world represents, that world again, that which is against Christ. Being a radical can be a good thing. Lots of times we look at that as being uh, bad in a sense or being rebellious. No, but radical in the sense that our life and worldview are so almost an antithesis of what the world, look, the world, remember, looks at the here and now and basically says, it's all about me. It's what can I get? Uh, I read this week in Newsday about Miley Cyrus, and she had been married, I think, about six months ago or so, and she and her husband had separated after six months, and she said something so interesting. Because I, I said, I, I read the entertainment column every day because I like to know what's going on in the world and entertainment. And from a Christian perspective, I like to get as far as to know, not that I get a Christian perspective from that, but I get what we're dealing with. Let me put it that way, uh, what we're dealing with. And she said something interesting. She said, we are ever-evolving. And she said, we have to focus on basically ourselves as individuals in our careers and I was thinking that's just the opposite of what Christian marriage is Christian marriage isn't based upon it's me how I want to achieve what I want to do this and that yes we have to consider ourselves but we're together with somebody else it's not all about me anymore it's not about it's where we we sacrifice for one another we work together and we love one another. Love is not just putting myself first, but basically so we, have to, we each have to focus upon ourselves and our careers. And I was thinking that's the world's view. That's why marriage is, is you see how it's just the uh, institution of marriage in our culture is, is really being hurt today by that. And l- marriage is becoming less and less a popular idea in our culture. People are just living together more and more. So anyway, let's go to Ephesians 2. And if I get my thoughts together here, uh, I'm going to start right at verse 1. And I'm going to read through this quickly so we can get to 1 John. Let's see what time it is. Okay. As for you, he's talking to Christians. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Notice, in which you used to live, he says, when you followed the ways of this world, meaning that system that is outside of Christianity. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, referring to Satan. All of of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, We were by nature objects of wrath. Now watch. Here's what becomes so radical. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Is that not radical? It says that we were dead in our transgressions and sin. And then it says, but God made us alive. We went from death to life, that's radical. When uh, the picture of that, when Jesus took Lazarus and raised him up from the dead, was that not radical? Well, now Jesus is talking as spiritually, a human being who is dead to God, who is living for himself and to gratify our desires. And then we are made alive in Christ Jesus. And now our focus goes from me to loving God, a love for his word and a love for others. That's radical. That's a big difference. Verse 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ in order that the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. And now look again. This is our new self. This is God's purpose. This is our purpose. For we are created, God. we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Look at the change. We go from someone who is dead in our trespasses and sin, and what are we trying to do? Gratify the sinful nature. Gratis- gratify that selfishness that's within me. A, a, a me-centered world. And what happens? For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to to do good works. We go from selfish gratification to good works. That's a radical change. Going from death to life is a radical change. And the whole premise, I guess, of today we could say is if you claim to be a Christian, and you have not radically changed, there's something wrong. You cannot live the same life you lived pre-Christ. If you do, that says something. The Bible says you can't be saved. How can you be saved? And we're going to look at the verses for that. I don't want to give it away. All right, let's go to 1 John. It is impossible to be brought from death to life, to be created, to do good works from Christ Jesus. It's impossible to not, in other words, how can I put it? It's, it's impossible to not be changed if you're a Christian. It can't be. And John here, what he's doing in this whole book, like I said, is giving us a series of tests. He's giving the test of what is a Christian. And he's going to go on today. If you recall last week, he says in in verse 2, actually, of chapter 3, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And this was the key verse last week. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We said last week that the hope that we have as Christians should be spurring us on to sanctification. It should be making us more and more grow in righteousness. Our motive is we have that hope. The glory of God ultimately. Paul in Uh, Chapter 5 of Romans says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's that hope. We are going to see Christ and we are going to be made like Christ. Not made deity, but made like him. We will be sinless and we will spend eternity with him in heaven. That's our hope. That spurs us on. That should spur us on unless of course we don't have that hope and unless we're not a Christian so he talks about this hope purifying us and now he talks about righteousness the evidence of these things and the difference between a Christian and the world verse 4 everyone who sins breaks the law in fact Sin is lawlessness. Actually, that word to lawlessness can also be done as wickedness, is another way it's put sometimes. That sin is wickedness, it's lawlessness, it's rebellion against God. Now, the test here is everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Sinning, breaking God's law, is contrary to being a Christian. Now, let me say it from the start. I'm not talking about sinless perfection. When when John writes this, the way he's writing it, when he says everyone who sins, the context the way it's written in the Greek means everyone who has a pattern of sinful life. So it's a, a constant pattern of sinning. It's not, how can I put it, the occasional time where you may sin. And then we, we should be grieved about that and ask God for repentance, repent before him and ask for his grace. But John is talking about the habitual sinner, the one who continues to sin to break God's law here. And Paul talks about that. He says that in... in Chapter 6 of Romans, he says that once we were slaves to sin. We were slaves to sin because we weren't saved. He says, but now we're slaves of righteousness. He says we should go, again, that radical change from living a sinful life to living a righteous life here. There should be a change After There should be evidence. You know, when people claim that they've been converted, and something I do worry about, and I will, will say it, you know, openly, I worry about people who claim to be saved because they've raised their hand or they've prayed a sinner's prayer or they filled out a card or they went up front in an emotional time. Can they be saved? Absolutely. I'm not saying they can't. But I'm afraid sometimes people use that experience to say, I'm a Christian. But where is the evidence of repentance, of confession, submission to God and his laws, obedience, the the manifestation of love, outward righteousness in their life, that has to accompany that, that, uh, confe- that declaration that Jesus, I want, him, I want you to be my savior. Well, those things should accompany that. I can remember going back a little bit. I used to deliver to a, a store in uh, right near Boston, Newton Highland. And the receiver there was a man just a little younger than me. He was, he was, when I was like 62, he was about 59, 58. And he himself used to talk about being a Christian. And I just, I have to be honest with you, and I would spend time, sometimes it'd take me an hour to unload. There'd be so much stuff I'd be bringing these people, heavy equipment. And it would take, and I'd be working next to them, and afterwards we'd talk for a few minutes and stuff. I never saw evidence. I never saw evidence of the Spirit of God living in this man. It was funny. One day, I, does that mean he wasn't? No. But there are certain signs you get. And I remember one day I left and I had to go back. I forgot my bill of lading. So I I was, I just started getting out the parking lot and I drove back. And he was in the warehouse and he was talking to a group of guys. And it was like, is this the same guy I talk to usually? He was like a different person when I wasn't there. Because through the years, he got to know that I was a Christian. And I, 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 was, I was shocked almost. I walked in there and I heard this guy coming out with these you know, profanities and, and talking and just and not in anger or anything even. Just I mean, not that that would be an excuse for him to curse, but just with a speech that was like, wow. This is like a different person. And I have to question myself. So I question. You know, I say, that where is the, the, the sense of righteousness in a person's life? that should be evident of that. Uh, where he says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. You know, one of the things that God does in conversion when he changes our heart, is give us a love for God and a love for the law. It's contradictory for a Christian to rebel against God's law. That just, it's incompatible. It's it's not compatible for a person to have a rebellious attitude towards God's law and continue to sin. And I want to show you in the Old Testament, if you want to go to Ezekiel for a minute, chapter 36, if you'd like, or you can just listen, chapter 36 of Ezekiel. Because I want to show you the principle here of this, of the change. This This is Ezekiel, maybe 580 years before the birth of Christ, talking about this new covenant that would is going to take place, where no more was it just where they had it was the outward law written on tablets. But watch what Ezekiel says God is going to do. Verse 25 of chapter 36 of the prophet Ezekiel. What do they call that when people, Bibles, the pages, I think they call it Baptist air conditioning or something, when people are flipping through their Bibles? Okay. Anyway, chapter 25, uh, chapter 36, I'm sorry, verse 25. My head is a little bit foggy, I'm sorry. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from your heart of st- i will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and i will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees do you see what, what, what god is saying here he's saying i'm going to give you a new heart that's regeneration he's going to regenerate them internally this new covenant is going to be an internal covenant he's going to change their heart he says and put a new spirit in you he's going to remove that heart of stone that's that hard sinful heart that resists God and he says and give you a heart of flesh it's soft and pliable and takes in the Word of God the law of God and I will put my spirit in you he says and move you to follow my decrees the Christian Even in the Old Testament, as Ezekiel talks about the new covenant, the one who's been actually converted, actually is a Christian, a follower of Christ, is going to want to, that Holy Spirit within us is going to want us to follow God's laws. We should have have this desire to follow God's laws and pleasing. It's pleasing to follow God's laws. I find in 34 years as a Christian, I never, ever, ever, ever regret when I followed God's laws. I have never regretted for one second following the law of God. What I have regretted is those times where I didn't. That's where the regret came in, the sadness, the pain, Because when we follow God's laws in the end, we may not get everything we want. We may not, things may not go the way we plan on them. But there's a peace there. There is a peace in your heart that I'm right with God. I'm pleasing God. That's what we were created for. We were created with the Westminster Confession, right? We're to give glory to God and enjoy Him forever. And when we glorify God, we're fulfilled. We were created to glorify God. When we follow his laws, we're giving him glory and we're receiving that peace and completeness. When we break God's laws, there's emptiness, there's guilt. It's sad. And Ezekiel here is is speaking the words God has given and saying he's going to give us that new spirit, that we're gonna to wanna to follow God's laws. That's how you can know a Christian, John says. You can identify a Christian. They wanna follow God's laws. It's not a burden. And you know why he's saying that? Because the false teachers were coming in. If you remember, these early Gnostics Gnostics, at this time, and they had that philosophy of dualism. Anything material and physical is evil. Your spirit is good, so what takes place there? When we sin, it doesn't really matter. The flesh is evil anyway. It's not going to count for anything. Our hope and desire is for one day when we, our spirit is going to be released from it, and it will be good. So it doesn't matter if you sin. So, And what John is saying here, he's exposing them, but from a, almost a positive way. He's not. He's not directly putting his finger at them, but he's giving the definition of a believer, of a Christian, that they want to follow God's laws. And these people weren't. Most of these Gnostics had very immoral lives. Sin doesn't mean anything. That's just what the body does. It doesn't matter. It's all about your spirit. God doesn't say that. Our bodies bodies are to be used as expressions of what God has done within us. Remember, Paul says uh, that we are to be instruments. At once, we were in instruments of wickedness and sinfulness. But then, when Christ takes a hold of our heart, we are instruments of righteousness, he says. Why? Because we're living in obedience to the Word of God, and we're, we're experiencing that. Here, uh, just one more. Go back uh, one one book to Jeremiah. Something that most of you are very familiar with: the New Covenant in Jeremiah in thirty-one, chapter thirty-one, verse thirty-three. This should be familiar to you. Jeremiah is writing this about five hundred and maybe eighty five years or so before the birth of Christ. This is before the fall of Jerusalem in 586. And he says, the time is coming, declares the Lord. Just a reminder, anything in the Bible is ultimately God's word. And here when the prophets would speak, they would always make it a point to say, thus saith the Lord, or God says. He says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. And that word make means to cut, cut a new covenant. Like Abraham, when God had Abraham cut those animals and he passed through it, they would cut a covenant. He says, I will make or cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Verse 33, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. It's internal. It's within us. But that's where the change should take place. How can you have the law of God in your mind, he says, and write it on our hearts and not follow him? And still live the same life. How could you do that if you're a Christian? He says, And I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the greatest, and the least, the greatest declares the Lord. Wow, that's the idea that it's within us. It's in us, it's already there. We have the law in our mind and our hearts thing is, we have to do it. But do you know, we as Christians have no excuse to sin. Technically, we have the ability not to sin. I know that might sound like, what? Say what? You know it's a But if you think about it, we have the potential not to sin. We have the Word of God in us, we have the spirit of God in us. The potential's there, but we choose to disobey when we sin. That's the only difference. That's that part of us, that sinful nature. But the potential is there. We never have to sin, but we do, and that's the sinful nature, but God also provided a way for us, didn't he? John told them, right? In fact. John makes the point, I'm going to go back to 1 John. And John in chapter 1, verse 8, he makes it clear. uh, You know what? Look at verse 2. I'll shorten this. Verse 2 gets right to the heart of it. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. John says, I'm writing this to you because you don't have to sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. John gives us some wiggle room there. He gives us a, a little loophole when we do sin. Not that it's an excuse, but he says, but if we do sin, he says, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So John is saying, I'm writing this to you so you don't sin. This is because you have that potential not to sin. But he says, but if you do sin. So he's, he's acknowledging that, yes, yeah, sin is going to come about. He says, but then we have, we go to Christ, we repent, and then we rejoice in God's grace. And I'll tell you what, as Christians, when we sin, if we do not feel grief inside, we got to ask ourselves what's going on. When we sin, I hope you, when all of us sin, I hope we feel awful. Because if we don't, then I have to ask myself, Is the Holy Spirit in me? What's going on here? Uh, Anyway, we'll move on here. All right. We looked at verse 4, the idea that breaking God's law is not compatible with a Christian. God gave us the laws. If we break them, we're rebelling. How can we call ourselves Christians? Again, this this is a continual type of pattern of life we're talking about here. We're not talking about again the sin that, you know, occasionally comes up, but we're talking about a pattern of life, a pattern of sin in our lives. Now, watch he gives us a second one. In verse 5, "But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin." Well, think about this. Jesus came, it says, to take away our sins. As Christians, if we sin, we're directly working against what Christ has done. He came to take away our sins, so we're going to sin more? We're working against the work of Christ on the cross, literally. We're going, that's not compatible. It doesn't make sense. If we're Christians, shouldn't we want to follow his law, not sin? Otherwise, we're, we're rebelling again against what Christ did like that. It doesn't make sense if we do that. He then says in verse 6, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, we can ask, why does it seem some people profess faith, they go to church for a long time, and then they disappear. And I think it's obvious. You know, people will say, and they go back to a sinful lifestyle. Chances are that person was never saved. Because if you have God's spirit in you, if you have the word of God in you, and you've been regenerated, you want to hold fast. And yes, we can, even Paul talks about that, right? He says, you know, give him over to Satan. And that's the test, because at some point, this man was sinning, doing a grievous sin with his stepmother. He was having a relationship with her, with his father's wife, his stepmother. And Paul says, hand him over to Satan. In other words, give him over, take him out of the church, and let him live with that if he's a Christian he is going to be so grieved he's going to come back. And if he doesn't what does that say? He probably never was saved. So John tells us here he wants us very much to know that these these teachers, these false teachers who were sinning says they're not Christians. They've 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 deceived many in the church by having them follow them, he says. But look at their lives. Their lives don't show any righteousness. They go against the law of God. They go against the work of Christ by the way they're living. He says, no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. This is a direct attack against those teachers. These guys are not Christians. But it's also making the congregation itself in this church ask themselves, are we Christians? Are we struggling with these things? Verse 7, he says, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. Again, these false teachers, leading people astray. You have the truth. You have God's spirit, you got God's law, don't let people take you the wrong way. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he, meaning Christ, is righteous. Again, that idea of righteousness. Remember, that hope, everyone who has that hope in him purifies himself. That's righteousness is the the fruit of that purification taking place. This is all about sanctification you know we focus a lot sometimes on salvation and we when we do we talk about justification and it seems to be we talk about being justified a lot but sanctification is what we need to focus on too living a holy righteous life when we're justified in salvation We are declared righteous before God, it's called forensic justification. It's legal, that term means. Legally, God declares us righteous, even though in our own self we're not, but why? Because the righteousness of Christ is imputed on us, which makes us righteous before God's sight, legally, in a sense. But, our true self? No, that's where sanctification starts. As soon as we're justified, the process of sanctification starts taking place. We're to be conformed more and more to the image of Jesus Christ here. And we we need to focus upon that because salvation, in a sense, when we are justified, is the work of God. And some people may argue or disagree with that, but I believe that salvation is monogistic. In other words, it's the power of God working on us with his grace and his spirit and getting us, and we read in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. He's saying even your faith is a gift that God gave you. If he didn't give you that gift, you couldn't believe. So it's all, the work of salvation is all the work of God through Christ. But the work of sanctification is synergistic. That's the fancy term that theologians like to use. Think of uh, when something is synchronized, they kind of all fit together. It's, you know, this, the idea of a synergism is two working together like that, God and us. Paul says, we, I think we looked at that scripture last week or I said it last week for a minute. He says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. We work out our salvation, but God is working in us. That's how we can work it out. We're not working, our, we're not working for our salvation. God has saved us. But now we have to take what God has given us and work it out. And how does that go? In obedience, in love, acts of righteousness, a life of righteousness being separated. What does sanctification mean? Being separated from sin, devoted to God. In the Old Testament, when they used to talk about the te- things being sanctified, it wasn't that they were sinless, you know, when they had a, a, a laver or utensils that they used in their ceremonies but they were sanctified, they were set apart, they were holy. The idea of holiness is sanctification, like that. And this is something that we should continually be reviewing in our life and asking ourselves, is righteousness something that is evident in my life? Is obedience to God, is love for God and a love for others evident in my life, or my life is kind of uh, empty with that stuff. That's important. And we are to continually look at ourselves. I don't mean in the mirror either. We do enough of that. But uh, people always, I always love when I pull up the cars. People are always looking and picking and makeuping. And, you know, and I'm talking about the guys only. <laughs> Wait till you see some of the ladies who do that. But, uh, but really... and. We need to do that same focus on our physical appearance as we need to look at our soul and how, what is the word of God? It's like a mirror to us. We look in the word of God and we see, we can look at ourselves and see God speaks to us and says, what's going on in here? That's what we need more of, we do. And the Apostle Paul, I know I use that scripture a lot, but it's an important scripture, I believe. Second Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, Paul says. Test yourself. He says, go through the test. John here has tests for that church. And Paul says, you as Christians, Corinthians, check yourself. Don't just go along, you know, merrily we roll along our Christian way. No. Be examining your heart constantly. Doesn't David say that too as he he writes that uh, psalm? He says... Lord, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is, you know, any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Uh, Proverbs 4.23, important proverb. It says, above all else, guard your hearts for it is the wellspring of life. The wellspring is that source of How we live is based upon what's going on in our heart and our mind. And the heart and mind are very close in the Bible. Sometimes they're almost interchangeable because what we're thinking and what's in our heart work together like that. It's important we do. We've got to check ourselves, make sure. All right, let's move on here quickly. Verse 7, I read, Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous, okay? He's focusing, he's saying, you want that test of being a Christian? Is, is there righteousness evident in your life? Or are you living an unrighteous, a sinful life? Verse 8, he who does what is sinful is of the devil. Wow, those are strong words, isn't it? He's of the devil. Jesus used that, uh, I think it might be uh, John 8, 44. If I He says something, he says, he says, you are of your father, the devil," he tells the Pharisees. You know, and you're basically doing his work," he says. The Pharisees thought they were children of God; we're the holy ones. And Jesus says, "Nah," he says, "You guys, are, your father's the devil." That's that's pretty strong talk, boy. Them's their fighting words, as they say. Uh, verse eight: He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. When he says the beginning there, he's talking about pre-Garden, when Satan rebelled against God. If you want to examine it a little bit, you know, look at Isaiah 13. And if I remember Ezekiel, uh, I can't remember, 28, 24, I can tell you later if you, you know, if you want to see, it gives us kind of a background on that revolt that took place in heaven. Like that. now, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin. Again, the idea of that word to continue to sin is referring to a habitual lifestyle, a life that just seems to be filled with sinning. It's just doing the opposite of God. He's now again not talking about the Christian who stumbles here and there with a sin. Why? He says, who's born of God will continue sin? Because God's seed remains in him. That idea of seed is almost like human beings. The idea of a sperm transfers. This Paul used that when he, he would use the word seed, and it's the idea of the traits. Of a father are given over to the son through his seed, through the sperm. And here he's using that type of language there to say that the traits of God are in you, his seed is in you, you know, and we have the Holy Spirit, we know, who is within us. He says he cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God, he's been born again. He's been regenerated. He's been radically changed. And that's, I think of regeneration or, or being born again. That's radical. The whole idea of being born again, that means being completely made over, new. You're a new person. What does Paul say in uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17? He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. A new creation, he says, we are. You know? Christian brothers and sisters, are we new creation? Are we new creations here? Are we is the evidence of God living in us? The righteousness of Christ. Is it showing in our life? If it's not... What are we going to do about it? Are we going to go home, spend time with the Lord, and test yourselves, examine yourselves, and ask ourselves, where am I in my Christian walk? Where have I gone all these years with Christ? Do I need to re-examine and ask myself what's going on? And even if you feel you're living a... A good Christian life how about desiring to live a better Christian life you know that sanctification is a process that means we're more and more being conformed to the image of Christ verse 10 this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God I love when John writes because again Light, dark, love, hate, death, life. He says, you're either a Christian or you're not, he says. And he's making the point to these people to examine themselves by this test, these tests he's giving us, is righteousness in your life, but he's also putting the focus on those false teachers and saying, let's see, this is what a Christian is. Do these guys look like they're living it? Do you look like you're living it? You know, it's not just he's focusing on them. He's also putting the spotlight back on us to examine ourselves against that. This is how we know we, who are the children of God and, are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. What does John do here? He talks about, first of all, living a right life, how do we do that? It's by loving God. We want to live right? Well, it's through a love of God that we do that. We gladly obey God. We, we follow him. But then the other example is we love those around us. Does that sound like a familiar teaching somewhere? I think some fella in the Bible said something like that, didn't he? That all the laws and the prophets hang on these two laws. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. It always gets back to that. The more I read the Bible, the more I study, it gets back to one thing. Love God, love people. How do we do that? Not in our own strength. We do it, the word of God in our mind and heart. David said, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We get that word in our heart and then we stay in touch with the Holy Spirit of God who He put in us and listen to Him. We start to do something and we get that uncomfortable feeling, ooh, that's a red flag. You know, you start to feel anger. I always feel like, if I start to feel anger welling up inside, that's a red flag. I got to ask myself, okay, what's going on? What's going on? Are you feeling disrespected? Are you not feeling loved? Are you not being recognized? Are you not saying, oh, This is my problem. This is my problem, not theirs. You know, I can do something about it. I I don't have to depend on others to do it. But John here is going along and he's making a case against these false teachers, but he's also letting the the people of the church, the Christians, know what they are to be the test who is the real Christian. How do we identify a Christian? And John has given that. And one of the characteristics of a real Christian, a true Christian, is righteousness. And God has given everything we need for that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us your word which instructs us in how to live. And thank you, Lord, for giving us the power to obey it through the Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us, Lord, to surrender to you. Lord, you said that if anyone would come after you, the first thing you said is let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me, Lord. May our lives leave a trail of righteousness, Lord. And Lord, when we do fall, when we do sin, I pray, Lord, that you would uh, put a a guilt on us, Lord, and grieve that would be unbearable, that we would quickly come to you, Lord, and confess and repent and then rejoice that in spite of who you are, you continue to love us as you always will, as your children, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that we can call you Father, that you've made us our children. May we be obedient children. We love you in Jesus' name.